Exodus for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to Exit for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the most recent issue of X-Force as well as the most recent two-parter in X-Men Legends. First up, this issue of X-Force came due on a number of plot threads. Now, it is no secret that I am a big fan of the character Manslaughter. We first covered the character way back in our 88th episode. Now, considering this episode is number 242, that is a remarkable amount of time to have enjoyed this character in the pages of Ben Percy's Marvel Universe. So, it's so terrific to see a number of plot threads come together and, you know, despite that, the team still recognized how many plot threads were still out there dangling. So, we hope you guys enjoy this segment as much as we enjoyed making it for you. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a like and a subscribe and check us out over on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon at X's for Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to X's for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, marvels, and magic. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, guys. I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Josipher3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hi, I'm Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. <laughs> And today we are here to talk about a series that's really growing on me and a writer's style who's actually really growing on me. So Ben Percy is the writer for X-Force 22, which is what we're here to talk about today. We've got Robert Gill on art color by the Giro EFX. VCs Joe Carmagna is our letterer. And you still got that Tom Muller on the overall design which I don't know if you guys follow him on Twitter at all, but he's teased that there's some new designs coming out, and I'm super psyched to see what is going on with that because I'm like, oh, new Xbox, what? Yeah, if you follow Tom Muller on his, on uh, Twitter, you can get some like some sneak peeks at like, oh, new books coming out maybe, or so. It is like he is worth following for the the, tw- the uh, X Men drama. Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. And like. I think, think he was saying, like, there's one classified that's done and there's one super classified that he's submitting. So I'm like, oh, is that two new X-Books or minis or whatever they are coming out? X-Force 22. For me, like, this book is starting to come together. I don't know if it's just like exposure therapy or or what with Ben Percy. Ben Percy is he's a great writer. He's his style just never resonated with me. It's technically he's a fantastic writer, but even in Wolverine, these past few issues, like the Louise arc is starting to come together for me. And the characterization of all the characters here in this issue and even in the last issue as well. The the sort of fun horror element with like manslaughter. There is just so much that has been coming together. 
that I am like, oh my God, okay, cool. I'm actually really getting the appeal of it. Maybe it's like to me, though, like there are styles of movies that people love and they're great and they just never appeal to me. Like say Westerns, right? I never really liked Westerns until I watched this one movie, Johnny Guitar. It's a crazy 1950s movie with Joan Crawford. And it had like, it was a Western with two lady leads. And just seeing that and the, the drama between them was able to get me to actually turn around on the draw on the genre. So maybe it's just seeing these issues and liking where the story is going that's really gotten me to turn around on his style. Now, where are you guys with Ben Percy? I know you guys were both saying you actually are really big, maybe not really big fans of him, but you really are appreciating his style. Tell me about what you guys are feeling. I actually really like Ben Percy's writing, and I think that X-Force has, has definitely um, been one of my top books in the X-Line so far. My only gripe with it is is that we're two years into the, uh, this run, and we're still talking about Zeno, and I know he's like come and gone, and like, um, you know, it's just, it, and I get that what I get what he's trying to do. Um, it reminds me like way back in the Claremont tenure when he would like put those, you know, like little hints of like, oh, you know, like little surprises to come that may come in like three years, you know, it may come in like, you know, a couple months. But for me, it's just not really hitting the same way that it did with Claremont. I think it's a little bit too much instead of just like a little like, you know, like it's, it's just like we're coming to it and then we're leaving and then we're coming back to it and then we're leaving and then we're coming back to it. And it's just like, okay, like, can we, you know, like resolve? the point yeah i find myself thinking along much the same lines as drew here we're on a wavelength today i was just thinking to myself like i i like ben percy's writing a lot i've grown he's grown on me a lot during x-force and wolverine and i really like the way he writes wolverine specifically i like the way he writes a really shitty beast um, but as much as you know while you were talking i was also thinking about how he's he's doing the claremont thing of like this long form leaving plot threads dangling so you can introduce more that eventually will pay off. But I think that the key difference and why it doesn't hit necessarily like Claremont is that a lot of this is still unresolved where Claremont would like resolve one thing and set up another in the middle of ongoing threads, right? So things would pay off and then they could come back and pay off again, but they would, they would actually pay off usually. And Zeno just hasn't for us in a way that is very frustrating so far because we get new threads, like, you know, whatever Russia's doing and stuff like that i i did appreciate that we got more characterization of the peacock man in this issue for once and i quite liked seeing him in here but yeah i'm, I'm enjoying percy i'm I, I really like his take on wolverine as just as a, a voice you know that's a, that's a fair point that was probably the last issue of wolverine was i loved the issue itself but i think my issue with jumping from where they did pre-gala to where he had wolverine go before is like there was a big big plot point with Wolverine and Louise going to Sebalith and Otherworld and then you know the gala happened so I get it I forgive that 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 I totally understand getting off track for but then they just start a new arc and you're like what <laughs> wait what happened yeah. with what happened with Sebalith like I want to see death I want to like what's what's going on here what's what what who what how but see I would say that was a good an example of a good dangling thread I okay. think the, the Zeno is an example of a maybe not the greatest one no that's that's fair. That's yeah, fair. the Zeno story doesn't have any like forward momentum is the problem. So whenever we see it, it's like we get a glimpse back in, but there's no reason for it to show up again next issue, right? It's just like maybe in the end credit scene of the next movie. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, not that plot again. 
I mean, this, yeah, it, we're definitely seeing a lot of that, like finding out that the Peacock Man was behind a lot of this issue was was cool and interesting, but it also is like it doesn't really advance the Xeno plot any more than like they're still there and they're behind it. I personally like that part because I thought it showed a lot more like cutting and guile than we'd actually seen from them before. And I was like, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. They actually can be a somewhat legitimate villain because there is some like cool, like, like backstabby stuff going on. And they're not just, you know, like it, yeah. that, that made a little bit more sense to me. Early yeah. in this issue, I actually believed what he was saying at first, you know, when he was like, oh, the, the mutants are like big pharma. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a thing I didn't expect to be dropped in the middle of a Swamp Thing-esque, you know, X-Force arc. I was surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> and then later in the issue, I'm like, oh, of course, he's just lying. He's a liar. That's what he does. Oops. But yeah, good well, job for making me buy that. They are, you know, that's, that's, let's talk about that. Like, do you all think that X-Men right now are like a big pharma company? I mean, because they, they're using their medicines to push not only, you know, uh, capitalism, they're using it to push political reform. They're using it to have the world government accept them. So in... And to streamline a lot of their their agenda points into policy. So right now they are sort of being big pharma, whereas, you know, before maybe Charles Xavier would have altruistically given away all of this medicine. Yes. But now he's taking like a purely capitalist approach to it. I mean, you're completely right. Uh, I have stopped reading X-Corp kind of for that reason. It's a little distasteful <laughs> for me to read. But you're absolutely right. They are like big pharma. I did not mean that that was where he was lying. I meant the implication that they were selling things that were purposely addictive and deadly, oh, yeah, yeah. where it seems pretty clear from what we've seen earlier in X-Force and Wolverine that Zeno is involved in the process of poisoning and cutting Krakoa and stuff with other more deadly uh, agents, as we've seen in with the uh, Order of X in the past. Yeah, I didn't really catch on that. It, like He was lying, but I was confused because I'm like, how come we haven't heard about this before? Like, you'd think that it, it would have come up in like X-Force or even in like a council meeting. Definitely, like... it's one of those things where um, I had to think back to where we've seen poisoned Krakoan flowers in the past in this own book, but also just like, he's not really lying, right? He's just kind of omitting the fact that it was him supplying this cut version to this guy's wife that you know that was the that was the big thing he was leaving out of that very important conversation yeah <laughs> he's like oh yeah these plants look at what the plants did but he's the the motherfucker who did it so, that was like, your life stealer actually <laughs> <laughs> that reveal was that reveal was it was fun actually it was i like that a lot very ironic I keep saying that I like the Swamp Thing direction this arc has been going, and this, more than anything, really took it in a, a very specifically Swamp Thing direction. Like, the Floronic Man essentially shows up in this issue? Basically. Yeah. Basically. Dr. Bloodroot, Jason Woodrow. <sighs> I So, as a character, Manslaughter very much, in this arc especially, seemed to serve more of a stand-in for how classic Man-Thing or even, you know, his DC Universe counterpart Swamp Thing would have been in a story. Now we know Man-Thing is going through his own stuff right now. So Man-Thing's not the Man-Thing we knew, especially if you've been catching up with, if you've been reading the Curse of the Man-Thing arcs, or the books. Like, do we feel this, this arc served Manslaughter as a character? I'm personally not as familiar with it. 
Like, I love the idea, but I'm like, you know, if you're going to give me man thing, just give me man thing. But like manslaughter always had a little bit more of a harder edge, a harder characterization to it. Do you think that he was really acting more as a man thing stand in and just man thing wasn't available? Or is this to sort of rehabilitate the character of manslaughter a little bit? I also don't really know manslaughter, but I know like I had the exact same thoughts. He did like, I don't really know manslaughter. I'm guessing he was from that weapon H no, yeah. that weapon. Uh, a couple of years back that came out. Like uh, I tried to do a little bit of research on him, but couldn't find too, too much. I was thinking the same thing. I have read every appearance of manslaughter so far, but there are not many. So I think that mainly this is just Percy has a fan favorite character that he created a few years ago and he's trying to develop it more and give it more character. Why it's not man thing. I honestly, I keep saying this and it's, it's sort of a disservice, but I don't mean it derogatorily to Percy, but it is a much more swamp thing version of the man thing. You know, I mean, it looks a little bit more like him, but his origins are also just more similar. The kind of stories that we're seeing are a little bit more of like that spooky occult kind of dealings with the with with something like the green you know in this case referred to as the garden specifically i mean man man thing and swamp thing similarities aside that's not necessarily a problem but man thing always seems like a less very less human sort of character than swamp thing had and manslaughter kind of bridges that divide in a way to make a more human character to uh to tell stories around at least occult occult swamp stories and you know mad science gone wrong stories yeah that was you know even if you look at Krakoa's role itself in this story, like very, very like, you know, like the green sort of thing, like Krakoa was almost like a stand in for, you know, those sort of vertigo, bigger elements that Swamp Thing worked with. The Parliament of uh, Trees. Yes, I was going to say, yeah, the Parliament of Trees, right? Like, so like it's, it's cool and it's crazy. And maybe that's why I'm digging this two story arc so much is because it is a very, very Marvel take on a DC vertigo type story. Yeah, I find myself enjoying that a lot. At first I was like, well, because I'm, I'm reading the current DC Swamp Thing and I'm really, really liking it. So it's hard for me not to judge this book in comparison to that. But I really shouldn't because this is not that book. So as for what it's doing, just doing a little like standalone Vertigo-esque Man-Thing story, manslaughter story here, uh, I did enjoy it. And I thought it was fun. In X-Force right now, and this issue is unfortunately wasn't as shady as he usually is. But these, these past few years have not been great for the character of Hank McCoy and his morality. Where, <laughs> which is an understatement, an understatement. <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, as as a previous Beast fan, I, I, I loved him in the Avengers. Beast in New Defenders really was an amazingly heroic character. He tried to and he was a competent leader and you know there there was so much that he was doing right back then so you've got the 70s 80s version of beast and then you've got a lot of modern readers resonate with that fun characterization that he had during X-Men the animated series. Yeah, he was so much better in that version. Honestly, right? the best version of Beast probably. Fun, smart, he was he had a moral core. Yeah. He was, you know, he was a good character. Then you come to him now where to say he's morally dubious would be like the biggest disservice. Like he's really morally fucked. He has become he has become the 
bright mirror of his own dark mirror image from the Age of Apocalypse. Like, there is a dystopian, amoral version of himself who is a supervillain, and he has grown to reflect him, like, identically. It's it's, it's a great arc. It is. He's also gross. Don't put your nails <laughs> when you're standing right around somebody's shoulders. It's disgusting. That is so gross. <laughs> Especially like, gross cutting your nails, thing. and that, I think, is, like, a private thing. Like, you do that in your bathroom by yourself, not in front of anybody. <laughs> like, he does God. it to aggress her. I think they have such a hostile relationship now. He's like, she knows my secrets. And so I'm going to clip my fucking nails <laughs> over her shoulder behind her hair. <laughs> uh, Those are not the only nails he clips, though. Why also yeah. is he clipping his nails? Wouldn't he be using them when like when they go like because he has a part of X-Force, you know, like, now he has. I, I would have thought he would have a scratcher post or something that he would just, <laughs> you know, like use. But so he uses that same gross toe knife, you know, to cut off manslaughter's fingers without warning or consent like a douchebag in the in this issue. And do you think I mean, I think it'd be extra gross to just like know that he had just been using that deep under his claws. <laughs> oh, no. Why is he so terrible? That's awful. But I like how you're like, he cut his fingers off without consent. Usually when people cut people's fingers off, it's did not consent. even ask. <laughs> you're like, well, hold on. So here is the question. At this point, if you had to team up with Beast or Dark Beast, who <laughs> would you trust more at this point? Uh, Dark Beast, because Dark Beast knows that he's a piece of shit, and I can trust him to be predictable in that regard. <laughs> Beast still thinks he's like a savior. He thinks of himself as some kind of god, and that's just, it's dangerous. I can't deal with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Dark Beast. At least, you, like that. Like like Steve said, at least you know he's dark, whereas now Beast is just like Amoral. Beast is listening to operettas in his office and moving his fingers around with his eyes closed and thinking to himself, oh, what a good boy I am. Yeah, he's, yeah. Li- he's listening to Wagner. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Beast yeah, now is- strikes me as like he's really like, they've really like leaned into, you know, when Kelsey Grammer played him. So like, he strikes me as a really like evil Frasier. It totally thing. is, right? Yeah. That you just hit the nail on the head. This is totally like evil Frasier piece. <laughs> He's like going to the wine tasting and like fucking like poisoning people who like have decent wines or whatever. <laughs> like, oh, uh, God. so when Beast does cut off his fingers, um, these little like basically new like manslaughters come out of him, right? So okay, I love that. But yes, yeah. <laughs> so fingerlings. <laughs> My like little theory is is that these fingerlings, as he says to you, could like grow <laughs> to become more bigger manslaughters, and then he can make an army, right? Mm-hmm. So we and we've been, you know, it's just another army that they can add to their little like army group that they have. That you know, they have the Sidri, the Brood, you oh, know, as like allies. So now they have like a man thing, another plant thing, and this will like they will need all of these little armies in order to fight the failings at the end of you know this huge battle bit. Drew I'm and, so glad you brought that up because and, it stresses and me out <laughs> I know it stresses me out too so I, I'm like every single time I see I see something where we have like that like something that can like this group of like I can make like armies you know easy I'm like they're gonna call them back at the end <laughs> yeah and just like Come. the data page mentioning that he's planning to experiment on my boy Black Tom <laughs> <laughs> that is so frightening and it's stressing me out don't threaten Black Tom like that. Uh, Hank 
McCoy experimenting on people is just like, why didn't he learn when he experimented on himself? Like, no, because he did it several times. He's the like, dumbest mad scientist who's ever lived. He really is. He really is out there giving like the the mad scientist vibe. But like, at least he he didn't used to be so fucking like evil, or that we knew. Yeah, he wasn't evil. He was just like thoughtless and reckless even from the beginning and i think that that just snowballs eventually into mad scientist and evil yeah because it's all about like the the what the what if like oh like i know like this thing is only like kind of shitty like it's shitty but acceptably shitty you know so i'll just do it but then when you start like going like oh this is a little bit shittier it's like some people may not find it acceptable but some people might so i'll just do it and then next thing you know it just like snowballs into yeah, you're just a piece yeah. of shit. And he, found, <laughs> he found himself willing to work with the most evil mutants on Earth, in, including his literal self, Dark Beast, in order to stave off the extinction of all mutants. A thing that I find 100% understandable. I do not have any blame for him for doing that. But I think finding himself finally getting that amoral in pursuit of defensive mutants just very clearly is a through line to here now, where he's willing to do all these black ops things in his mind in defense of mutants, in defense of but it's it's very much self-serving and very uh ego driven yeah it's either beast way or the highway and like yeah. and, and and that's it there's no room for other opinions uh like thoughts or there's no kind value of, to other opinions to him right yeah and it's just it's yeah. just like this is how it's going to be like even like that's that he doesn't take into consideration other ideas it's yeah it's his way well didn't he didn't he really drive that point home when he brought the time displaced original x-men back to back to the future whatever you want to say that but like when he brought the all-new x-men into current day didn't he really just prove that point that he just doesn't fucking care and he just wants everybody to he did it to try to browbeat cyclops into seeing things the way that he saw it there are so many easier ways to do that <laughs> and it didn't work at all no <laughs> that's what i was trying to say is it's like you don't like does he like not be like let's try and think of something else before i do the shittiest thing on earth like, no, it's, like, no, that it's just the first idea is the one that we pick <laughs> He's a first draft mad scientist. Yeah. He spins the wheel and wherever the wheel lands, he's he's he is persistent if nothing else. He's like do, 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 do. oh it just passed over have a good talk to him oh bring our <laughs> bring our younger selves back that's what i'm fucking doing all right cool you just like see someone like beast why don't you just talk to cyclops He's like no no <laughs> i have a better no way. look the wheel landed on bring our time to sales time to place selves back that's what we're doing look which way they will stay the for the next five years <laughs> i do have to say i know we, we mentioned it pages seven Eight and nine in digital were some of my favorite pages in a X-Men book recently, just because I have been missing that sort of vertigo horror vibe. Which page are those the pages where he throws the skeleton of the man into the open grave? Oh no, that's at the <laughs> end, and that's amazing too. Like these are where Beast and Sage, right when they cut Manslaughter's fingers off. Oh, and yes. the little and the little mini manslaughters are climbing all over Beast and like it actually looks cute for a second. And I was like, Oh, that's cute. And then I was like, Oh god, they're climbing over Beast. No, 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 no. Yeah. When they're tugging at his ear, I was like, Oh, that's adorable. It's like a little <laughs> dog ear, but then I'm like, maybe he could rip it off just one. Just one. <laughs> yeah, I want to commend Robert Gill on the art for this issue. Yeah, it's good. He, he did a really good job kind of 
translating Kassara's art through, you know, like, like I think this will, again, I've said this before, but it'll look good in trade with, like, yeah. Kassara's art. It's yeah. very, like, comparable. Yeah, there's there's one panel of Beast in particular right right after he cuts the fingerlings off when he's being choked by manslaughter, but he's looking, he's not paying attention, he's looking at the fingerlings, uh, where <laughs> it looks very much like that this is Josh Kassara's Beast on the page, uh, translating yeah. very well without, like, being too far off from Robert Gill's style, which here looks, I think, better than it has in the past even. We've all kind of mentioned the similarities between Swamp Thing. Do we think there is room in the X-Men stable right now for a more horror-themed book? Like, Krakoa, to me personally, is a great place that really, that horror style could shine through. There's a lot of more offbeat mutants that you could have, you know star in one of those books like take Cosmar from New Mutants you know just with her interesting body style to the interesting style of her powers when they introduced new character they introduced in Pride Son of Us you know his powers could really translate well to that like would you really like to see a a straight up horror themed X-Men book set on Krakoa yeah I want to see that teased Dark Riders book from Curse of the Man thing like I would I would love to see a Magic's team of very non- human passing mutants with sort of supernatural bents doing things i absolutely i'm very interested in that hellions is doing a little bit of a horror but it's more like a mm-hmm. cronenbergian horror a lot right. of the time yeah, yeah I, I, I would i would love to see a horror book and i what when you were talking then i was thinking of magic as like my character that i would hey uh, and i agree with you steve that like a magic like that would make like a good horror series uh, yeah in this magic time. would definitely make a great team lead for that because when you're dealing with the darker magic, right, you, you have to be a little brutal. And, you know, I wouldn't put Ileana on a street team where they're out there, you know, like I wouldn't put Ileana on the X-Men, right? Because she'd probably go out there, chop some heads off, <laughs> scare the fuck out of some humans, right? But like when you're dealing with supernatural forces, there's probably nobody better to have on your side. And I did like that Dark Raiders team. I would definitely love, especially Sarah Marrow to be brought over to it because... Yeah. Her powers themselves are just so cool and body horror. Like, she pulls her bones out of her body. Like, that is... Yeah, it's so much more Halloween than we ever really talk about with with Meryl. Yeah. Who else Who else do you think would be good on the team? Do you just want that Dark Raiders team, right? Dark Raiders team coming out? Or, you know, like, do would you want something different with that? I mean, I don't want to give too much away since we're t- I'm going to be talking about it tomorrow in, in real time, not in, not in whatever our listeners... Well, give it doing. away. Give it away because... But, no, I mean, I'm the Defenders book is giving mm-hmm. me a lot of what I'd like to see in the Marvel Universe, uh, at least so far, with more occult horror going on. And honestly, I think there's room for crossover there with characters like Magic and uh, Doctor Voodoo and uh, Scarlet Witch. And we've seen a lot of these people interact in previous books. And I think that I don't know what's going on with Scarlet Witch right now, but if if for some reason she gets retconned back into being a mutant in the near future, I would love to see like Storm, Magic, and the Scarlet Witch do some kind of like a cult mini a la the old vertigo style of really supernatural horror like dealing with demons dealing with occult sacrifice ritual yeah i would love that even like like i'm thinking even like an x like excalibur kind of horror you know with with that you know like in other worlds and all that yeah, this definitely didn't get enough of from Excalibur, really. Mm-hmm. Excalibur could do something like that, although Excalibur's always been like the 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 light, bright, shining type of magic. The fey magic, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, the fey magic. So, you know, you're you're 
Right, but there are some worlds through other worlds that are like a little bit darker. Yeah, yeah. like the Crooked Market. And, yeah, I want to support yeah. a Hot Hive. What the hell is going on in Hot Hive? Because it seems crazy in there. Oh uh, yeah, I need to I need to go back to the other world and find out what happened to Red Root in the Crooked Market. Like that character was so amazing to me, and I was like, yes, yes and they so took him away. You must protect the root. <laughs> what did y'all think of the, the the main battle between, you know, basically the Floronic Man and the X-Force team? A little anticlimactic for me, but honestly, that was fine. I was I was kind of glad that they wrapped it up in a single issue that, rather than, like, we're, we're teased that he's going to come back, and that's fine. But, like, I didn't need a giant Floronic Man arc in the middle of this just because <laughs> like, there's other things that need to be wrapped up at this point. Yeah, and we've had, like, I, I like, again, we're two years into this and like the flower references and like the flat you know everything being like flowers and plants i'm like a little bit tired like maybe like i just feel like it's been done to death in like a couple books with like this horticulture you know that it's just overdone you don't think that that's a, a strong link to the krakoan era i do i think that we've kind of beaten it to death now though two that's years in. I, f- I feel like hickman introduced them with far too jokey of a concept for them to be taken super Seriously, which is kind of a shame because it would be nice to have some like old lady villains who are a little bit more like intimidating but I mean like they were able to do so much in Empire X-Men but I think a lot of that is due to the fact that Warren Worthington and Magic not necessarily the brightest bulbs in the X-Men box were the ones <laughs> and they yeah. underestimated them heavily I mean they were just lucky to have Monet on hand yeah but I also think like they're kind of more like a minor villain you know like like not every villain has to be like an A-list you know like they're just kind of like like I like I compare them to Mole Man, you know, just like a, <laughs> ugh, like <laughs> they are the. Wait, wait, wait. The are you saying? that they are the nanny of the current generation <laughs> i guess so and then maybe in they like 10 years <laughs> i guess yeah. they are and then in 10 years they'll like turn into something like way Super. better <laughs> yeah. yeah like 10 years from now we'll be like fuck yeah horticulture stay on horticulture not like what <laughs> zeb wells is horticulture <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> The one thing that's really taken to me is how visually stunning the Order of X, like, robes are. Like, and seeing them together being hijacked by these, you know, man-thing vibe fine things, you know, like, that just really showed how creepy... An already creepy idea can become. Do you think the Order of X is going to become a problem in the future? Like, do we see them flipping from adoration of mutants to becoming like the friends of humanity? I mean, I think that they're already a problem. You know, they're honestly quite gross fetishization of mutants with their whole like, oh, maybe one will give me a baby thing. Ugh. Like, I I hate that far more than I hate what Buddy was doing over in over in Adam over the course of you know this short series order of x are like just absolutely gross yeah um, but they also fall really flat for me i their initial arc was interesting but now that we've seen the rest of what the world thinks and the rest of what x-force has been dealing with they just they are like horde culture now they're just a very they're they're a joke team at this point you know yeah to me they're just like they haven't really been featured that much that like they're i, I, I honestly haven't given them too much thought they, they've just been kind of like a background cult that 
you know, is, <laughs> yeah. is, is around. And, and like, I am aware of them that they're there, but like, I like, yeah, like Steve said, I think they are just going to be like, kind of like this minor thing that is happening, you know, just like a little, like it's a development in the Krakoa era, like because of the Krakoa, this happened and no, it's kind of whatever. Do we think that manslaughter connection that they they gained with Krakoa do we think that's going to play an important part in the future or is or that just like a plot point that we're kind of like never going to see again I think it's a I think it's another dangling plot thread <laughs> introduced among a forest of dangling plot threads but like the fact that they they very specifically singled out Black Tom Cassidy for experimentation very obviously without his consent or knowledge again uh, makes me think that this is going to come back if not with manslaughter with the weaponized army that beast inevitably intends to create possibly to defeat the phalanx as drew pointed out very interestingly yeah i was gonna say obviously they have to come back or else my theory is not there (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's gonna come back at the very end okay so let's let let me ask you a little bit about your theory so Hmm. the phalanx really haven't been featured much lately obviously so there was a flip of the hierarchy in that techno organic, um, I don't know what to say, the technical organic society from Hoxpox, right? So originally it was presented to us that the technarchy were the higher strain and that the phalanx were a byproduct of the TO, the technarchy virus, yeah, right? One that they existed to wipe out. Yes. So Hoxpox flipped the switch on that. So basically they were like, no, haha, you thought the technarchy were cool, but the phalanx are cool. So do we think that is more of a thing that will happen? in the future because that was obviously Moira's life where it was thousands of years from now or do we think that is an event that is and has always been I think that that is the way that Hickman is presenting it to us in his data pages throughout Hoxbox. It absolutely seems like that is the way it has always been. And they treat, I don't know how to say it. It's usually spelled K-V-C-H, like Kvitch, Kvitch. Um, which is nice. Like I, it seems like an automatopoeia to me, but it's that sound that they make when they're chicken checking around. But I, I, I like that they present the technarchy as thinking of themselves as independent, even in those data pages. So it seems like it's always been the way but i also think it's uh, a, i think it's a service honestly because the technarchy have always seemed really goofy and I, obviously warlock is a lot to do with that but the phalanx really scared me as a child just because i read those like late 90s ones with the, the universal phalanx which were so different and scary Ooh, that was a good arc though um, that arc <laughs> oh my god bishop Ooh, and that team like yeah bishop and what warbird so we have been treated to a little bit more of characterization from Sage. How are we liking this overall characterization of it? Does it gel with, you know, that classic Sage that was Tesla that we have all sort of seen again because they reprinted that classic X-Men number seven backstory with Lord of Chantel's Marauder issue? Does that gel with it? Do we see how that character came 
to be what who she is now and you know like do we just kind of want her to kill hank and like take over x-force for herself but you know yeah I, I mean i do i'm kind of getting really tired of seeing her just kind of be like i hate you you're a monster <laughs> but it's like okay but you could do something about it like emma knows too like this is it, after the gala consequences for beast are far overdue and at this point it's going to like it's going to really matter whether those consequences come for real home to roost in this book or whether they don't is going to make or break whether i think this series can survive mm-hmm. i def- i think that it that that will be resolved in inferno and that kind I of very much it will because it just with it just seems like the perfect like timing for it right like yes if they're questioning the thoughts yeah. of krakoa and beast is a part of that like the ideals then it just makes sense that he would be put under his trial during inferno or at least brought up to the council and like the council discussing it yeah i'm not like upset about it yet but it's it's gotten to the point where i can't watch sage do this for too much longer without losing mm-hmm. like her own dignity as a character and to be honest um back to when we were talking about like dangling plot threads i think that the beast one has like the beast plot has been like perfectly timed but i think that like you said steve the like if it doesn't get resolved after inferno i'm pretty gonna i'm gonna be a little bit disappointed because like something needs to happen soon yeah it, it can't just keep going on like this mm-hmm. really and like expect us to give it goodwill it's been very obvious lately what plot threads are going to be brought up with inferno x-force has always sort of run with the this premise that you know the team is flawed because they're doing it in the name of Greco and society so like i haven't seen that pivot as much lately because vita's book in new mutants is obviously talking about the less human uh, presenting mutant characters and their place in Krakoa. we've got cable even had strife doing the incantation that they did in the original inferno to kill the babies and try to bring it back so there's a lot of different plot threads coming up do we think that x-force's contribution to inferno is going to be like, are their secrets going to come out finally? You know, like, does Krakoa get to find out about all the shady shit the Beast has been doing? Uh, I think it must. I, I think that, yeah, like like Drew said, and like we talked about earlier, I think that is a necessary part of Inferno. And if not a necessary part of Inferno, I think that it needs to be impacted by Inferno, specifically with regards to Beast. It's like, if, if everything is coming down to the wire and ev- everybody is finding out deep, dark secrets, and if Mystique is in fact trying to burn down the government then i think that yeah there's no other way to play it you can't leave beast and his horrific secrets out of that i could be wrong maybe i will be not only that but i just think that like like because even gene would have something to say about it too like she she was one of the first people to witness his bullshit so Mm -hmm. like it's like they have like they have the proof you know they have they have the people too to back them up and it's not like like everyone on x-force like thinks he's a piece of shit and then there's also (laughs) there's emma too like you know what i mean he doesn't really have the number Right. And I do think that like 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 we've been saying that if we're talking about the fall of the quote unquote fall of Krakoa, then this has to be a part of it. I know that they've solicited that issue with Colossus on the cover. Yes. And I definitely think that he'll have something to do with it too. He's on the, 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 the recent previews that they posted because Beast was a piece of shit to Colossus, right? So oh, yeah. that that could be how they like bring it up, you know, in the start, even with what happened at the Hellfire Gala. And we know that Colossus is kind of like mad about Krakoa as like seen on that data page in this issue um, yep. which when Ben Percy does those types of data pages those are my favorite when he like literally is just like you know what I'm going to take this page to write a book <laughs> yeah I, ap- I appreciate his little prose 
those segments. I, I, quite frankly, if Colossus is the one to bring justice home to Beast, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> like, really, rather than any of the women in his life that he feels so superior to. I, I think Sage deserves it most right now. I mean... Jane Gamma Jean, there's a, there's yeah. a number of videos. Yeah. I mean, Jean left the team because of him, right? Yeah. So. yeah. Jean's like, fuck this shit, I'm gone. Bye. His, old, his <laughs> oldest friend that he still condescends to in the Krakoan era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, he's like, oh no, I'm doing it for Krakoa. She's like, no, you're not. I'm a mind reader, dumbass. So, do we think that when the secrets come out of X Force, do we think that Logan can come out unscathed? You know, to the reader, he's obviously been a semi-voice of reason trying to tell the beast to fuck off when he needs to but do we think that the Krakoan residents you know in whatever stands after Inferno do we think that they are going to be able to forgive Logan for his role in this honestly I think it's like uh, it's terrible to say this but for narrative reasons it's really easy to imagine Logan getting out completely unscathed because he's a he's a serial killer who's like 200 years old he's done most of his serial killing for governments or for you know a authorities of power that can absolve him of it in his mind or in others minds and he's forgotten more than he's ever learned in his life so i think it's really easy for logan to get out of this as just an unwitting pawn of the state i wish that he would stop being pawns of all these states that he's always doing that but like it's unreasonable of me to actually expect that from logan at this point i think there it's hard to ask a 200 year old dog to learn a new trick <laughs> a literal 200 year old dog yeah <laughs> yeah not only that but like it's it's kind of like he's found peace on krakoa like remember going like that first issue of hawks pox like where he's like like hanging out with the kids and that like that's kind of like i guess his narr- his overall narrative in this like run is that he is trying to like find peace but then he gets almost this is kind of like how i consider dazzler too it's like she just wants to be a musician and he just wants to like chill and be like the old man in the cabin but they just keep getting like roped back in this like, is you unforgiven know. um like <laughs> the westerns like they, they just keep go- like he gets like caught on like oh you want to join x4 so oh, we got this thing to do and i feel like the same thing is with Dazzler too like she just wants to be a musician but oh we need your help to ask on the X-Men, you know? Yeah. This doesn't excuse what Logan has done, but also, like, nothing ever has. He's always been at peace with the idea that he's just, like, a guy who does bad things for reasons that he considers right or necessary. And Yeah, none of this excuses it. None of this is, like, I'm, I'm not saying, like, this is good of him to do. It absolutely is not. But he's also just, like... Man, for all his detective work in his own book, Logan's kind of dumb. He just <laughs> he just has not figured out the things Beast is doing, or he doesn't want to look at them, is what I think it really is. Logan is an expert at not looking at a thing that he doesn't want to know or doesn't want to understand. He's been doing that his entire life. Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. I mean, I think he's smart enough to realize what's going on. He's seen it enough. He just... He chooses to ignore it because he has to do it to survive with his conscience. Yeah, he's a man who's so used to doing things that just require him to bleach his brain, literally or metaphorically. And I feel like at this point, it's like a second nature to just do that. Yeah, he's probably the only one who can actually survive a literal bleaching to the brain. So, like, <laughs> yeah, like I can yeah, kind of might imagine. just get him drunk. <laughs> we also haven't really gotten much of like what he thinks about the whole situation, like on panel. It's mostly just been with like Sage or Gene a little bit colossus i mean they're like he did call him out and was like yeah you are a piece of shit but like he hasn't been like not the overall situation of beast being dark east i feel like if you like listen in on beast's brain if you were a telepath like it would be get really boring and probably gene doesn't do it a lot because i bet it's like 80 percent of the time it's just like best there is of what i do 
Oh, Logan. I thought you said Beast. I was like, hey. oh, oh, sorry, Logan. Yeah, I meant Logan. Because uh, <laughs> Logan's narration is always that too. Like when you're reading any Wolverine comic, Ben Percy, otherwise, it's like it's a lot of him thinking to himself, "Best there is of what I do. I kill people all the time. I'm just thinking about it all the time." Yeah, and or if he's like, if he's in a fight, he's like, "I'm gonna kill you. Like this is how I'm gonna do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all he thinks about is the process of how and why he's murdering. He's like, "I need a beer after this." Yeah, no, yeah. give me. Nice. A beer best there is at what i do drinking beers <laughs> <laughs> his, his his mental gymnastics are trying to figure out does what beer does he order does he order like you know does he go with the cores this time is he like mm, well go with the classic like molson like what you know like what is he doing you know like he's like give me a whiskey fred and Fred's like, okay, Logan, but whatever. It's a nice Canadian whiskey, right? Yeah. A nice rye, right? And he's got his Molson chaser, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, any final thoughts? <laughs> final thoughts are: I wish that uh, Domino could get back some of the characterization she lost with her brain wipe after her death. Yeah, goddamn, she had a really good a few issue arc, and then bam, they're like, Colossus uh, hit her with a train in. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly on purpose but you know that's the wrong kind of running trains on somebody <laughs> personally you know i've said it like a million times i love the horror vibe that these last two issues gave off i love you know i and i'm sorry drew and i know you said you were tired of all the the floronic stuff but i love i love the floor like the i love the idea of the flowers and the invasive species and you know, there's just so much plant biology in these issues yeah. that I'm kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Like I was reading this thing and I was like, you know, we got to get Evelyn <laughs> to talk to about talk about some of this because she's, you know, the you know, she's the plant biologist, right? But like, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm digging, that I'm I'm loving, that they they are. It's pseudoscience, obviously, because comic books and they're never going to follow real science but they're trying to bring that sort of element into the book and that's really kind of cool Hey everybody, Nico here. And okay, so X-Men Legends, what a fascinating experiment. Mostly, yes, I like it, yes. It's been really interesting because we've taken a look at the first two-parter by Fabian Nicieza, the second two-parter by, of course, the incredible Simonson team, and this third two-parter, which sees Peter David return to the pages of his classic X-Factor run, this time with Todd Nock. And there's something so fascinating about how much discussion each one of these stories has stirred up for us as readers, even when the story itself is maybe not treading the most unique new ground. One of the most fascinating things is I expected this discussion of X-Men Legends numbers 5 and 6, or as we're affectionately calling them, X-Factor 75.1 and 75.2. I expected these to, you know, I expected this 30 minutes, right? But we went on for an hour and a half. What made it to air is a really solid hour and 20 minutes of three longtime fans who read the original X Factor somewhere around its infancy and have seen the run grow up. It was a fascinating experiment, and we are, of course, excited for more issues of X-Men Legends, even if we have some tweaks we might want to see happen to the series. Of course, guys, we love making this show for you, and if you like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see, so don't forget to check us out over on Twitter, YouTube, and Patreon over at X is for Podcast. As always, I'm Nico, and I want you guys to keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and until next time, we'll see ya.
Hey, everybody, welcome back to Exit for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I'm Arturo, I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Josh Will. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W E I L, on Twitter and asleepatthewheel.com. And for the next two years, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate and at joshwheel.org. And I am so excited to have these two particular gentlemen with me because what we are talking about today is a story, however many canceled years since the original X Factor in the making, which is X-Men Legends numbers five and six by the incredible team of Peter David, Todd Nock, and Rochelle Rosenberg. And I say the colorist on this one because it really fucking matters. Right now, before we get into into all of the exquisite ways Rochelle Rosenberg transported me to a color spectrum I had forgotten was viscerally impactful on the way I interpret comics because holy shit, and we're going to, I, I, can, I, can, I can't, but what I can is I need to know, how do you guys feel about classic Pad X Factor? And I mean, Casada, Stroman and all. I am a fan of a lot of Peter David. I've met Peter David a couple times, had some really nice conversations with him. I genuinely like him as a person. We mentioned this in a recent episode. I think that Peter David kind of takes a little extra shit because he swings and misses a bunch. And and especially in the 90s, in the 90s, early 2000s, we're talking about someone in a white cishet male dominant, dominant, like not like we say it is now, but like just a completely across the board landscape. Just Just a straight white massacre. And he was the one willing to kind of step out of that comfort zone out of his wheelhouse and try to tell these stories that were not any other writer stories. Like there was no one in there who, now there were people who could, but they were not being hired. There was no one in the bullpen at Marvel and DC who could tell these stories. And most of them wouldn't and didn't want it or care to. So he stepped out and, you know, he tried telling stories about trans characters and Middle Eastern characters. And, you know, he's gone across the spectrum to different races, ethnicities, gender sexualities and really tried but it's not him and he doesn't have that voice and he gets knocked for that a lot but I, I think that he no pun intended since that's the name of our artist today um he he sh- should get some credit one because he is well-intentioned on this he he means well in in what he he's, he's genuinely a good dude i believe in my experience of having met him and and you know he he was reaching out and giving representation you know when it it didn't exist and and wasn't accessible from creators represented creators so i'm a big fan having said that i know that as someone who loves a lot of his runs like his aquaman run his supergirl run his x-factor run that they are enjoyable when reading them, but often a lot of the flaws are easily noticeable when you start trying to explain to someone what's happening. Like if you just sit back and try explaining to someone what was going on in his Aquaman one, you make it even harder to try to convince them that like, no, this was a really great Aquaman run. Like you get to the point where they're like, no, Atlantis is one of seven different alien Atlantises across like space. And you know, and they're they're flying up in spaceships and, and people are like, what? And you're like, yeah. And then and like he's going through a midlife crisis so you know he starts sleeping with this like questionably young girl who then marries Aqualad like <laughs> and it just gets 
and, and you're like, no, I swear it's good though. Like that's actually how I feel about Whedon's Astonishing. When you're like, what? okay, but it all happens in three days. It's just like one day, and then the next day, and then like two days, six months later, and they kind of pretend that nothing else ever happens, and people are still stunted six months later, even though they've clearly gotten past it. But trust me, it's good. You kind of wind up in that like it's a run, with me, not a can. Like thing. I, I, I gotta just say, like I love the classic, you know, Peter David X Factor. That to me was such an important book when it was coming out. That was, you know, again, to pull up the, you know, nostalgia card. Like that's when I was reading comics as a kid. I was reading that, you know, going to the comic shop every week and X Factor, Peter David's X Factor was so different from everything else in the line. Like there had just been the huge, you know, X-Men reset where classic X Factor team moved back into the mansion and there was this whole new team and Val Cooper and it was so just different and, and clever and I agree that like a lot of the jokes maybe don't hold up some of the cultural references are definitely going to be lost on on you know new readers that are, are going back and exploring this on Marvel Unlimited or what have you but at the time it just felt just smart and and just different and I think that's kind of like where I started developing like a love for you know procedural slash government you know muckety muck kind of content you know that that turned into eventually like loving like West Wing and Veep and whatever else like there were threads of that back in X Factor that just spoke to me in a, in a weird way where there was this team that was assembled with the best of intentions and it was really when I truly fell in love with Havoc and Polaris and these characters that were had been so B-list nobody really loved them back then like you liked them maybe but you know they were always more potential than actual stories and then Peter David came and he brought all of this potential to life and you know not all of it is great but it was at least interesting and, and great so I I really enjoyed this review and then there was the other Peter David run right when it was X Factor Investigations and like that was that was coming out at a point where I had gone out of comics and then kind of was weaving back in and I was kind of like testing the waters or whatever but I wasn't like a weekly reader and again Peter David just came back and did something very different so I appreciate that I appreciate that the guy always you know has a different take on on what's going on he's trying to give you something that's not just x-men light or or x-force light he does he he gives it a he was doing he was doing character work in this book before the other books of the time did because we think of all the character work done on the new mutant characters growing up and what happened to them in x-force but that was not in the early nistia's run like that came after in the jeff Loeb and then the more run yeah he did do and and honestly i want to kind of bring up this is something nico recommended to me a while back but I, i had picked up the gallery edition of god loves man kills the extended cut uh which by the way is just a a gorgeous presentation a a fantastic vibe and claremont has a a modern kind of little editor's note in the back where he talks about that there are two changes he made from when this was first written until this current 2020 extended cut and he says that one of them was removed completely the other one was left in but you know he redacted a word that you know he wouldn't print today and and he explained the difference and he said you know that you know both of these were fine these weren't even things that he caught criticism or question on and for like 15 20 years at least after they were written <laughs> like in the time in the time they were not even questionable as 40 years has passed he says one of them is at a point where it's understandable for the character and makes that like it's it makes sense where it is even if it's not appropriate to be printed the other one he says now like 
clearly is way off in terms of what it implies culturally and just the panel has to be removed. And and to say that, you know, like as time passes, there are ways to, you know, our opinions on some of these things change and not always the same. It's not always in or out that there could be like a, yeah, I don't like this, but that doesn't mean that it's not honest or real or like, or, you know, like, okay, the character could have done a bad. It's the Neil Gaiman um, thing that just happened about a game of you where people tried to come for Neil Gaiman and called him super turfy over stuff that happens in a game of you. And he was like, and it's such a misreading of the uh, goddamn text. It's fuck. just like, you're yeah. missing the whole fucking point. He's like, that's uh. a bad person in that story having a bad opinion. Yes. What are you missing? And it couldn't be more clear. Oh my God. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. No, no, no. It, I get it's pissed. that level I'm of, very code, protective like, of shared Neil aneurysm. Yeah. So yeah, so looking back on some of these too, just to say that maybe there was some tone deafism because there is. And you know, when we go to when this story takes place, this story takes place in between 75 and 76. Right. Which 75 is the end of the first arc of Peter David's X Factor, which, is- which has, you know, the multiple, multiple mans and the question of who the real one is, and really just a bunch of meddling from Sinister, um, who's only getting involved in fucking around with things to, you know, remind Alex who his dad the is. The nasty boys. We got the nasty boys. This is like right before Executioner's song then? Like yes. a bit. Before. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. The very next thing is a crossover with Peter David's Hulk. So Which in between 75 so and 76, readers would have had to have read uh, Hulk 391. And then it's a crossover that involves Pantheon, which are some weird kind of forgettable characters that whatever from the Hulk run. And <laughs> and it's an issue that's most remembered because it takes place in this, I have the name of it here, Transibal, which essentially I think was probably supposed to be Iraq, but you know, as people who aren't familiar with the Middle East just tend to Middle East cross things up is really more representative of kind of Yemen dealing with Saudi area. So much more of like a a Yemeni conflict from Saudi above, but it's dealing with Middle Eastern conflicts and kind of humanizing and putting these characters in a situation where it makes it real. Most of all, and the most impacted being rain. And this is one that I remember being super impactful before and later read. And then, so later reads as like 21st century adult Josh reading. Then <laughs> post 2018, having spent a year living in the Middle East, Josh reading. Very different. Like there's, there, it is, and again, I go back to the kind of well-intentioned and how much do I love humanizing Middle Eastern characters, demonstrating the horrors of the war-torn state there in the 90s. Like, because that shit only got harder starting September 12th, yep. 2001. Like it was a big freaking deal when we got <laughs> a Arab dis Muslim character from Detroit being the star of Green Lantern Zero in 2012-2013, more than a decade after 9-11. Like, we were so far away, so far away from getting this for a long time. You know, uh, Soraya Qadir comes into mind, but another character who's, and I've and I mentioned on this podcast before, like, the, the Middle Eastern ethnicity mingling of, like, she's Afghani, but her plight is kind of Syrian, and her dress is definitely, like, gold 
Gulf Coast Khaliji because, you know, Middle East, well-intentioned, but not nowhere near the authenticity you get from like H.G. Willow Wilson Miss Marvel, which I would right. say definitely is the first like, holy shit, we can have nice things for, and, and not not Arab per se, because South Asian, but for brown Middle Eastern Muslim characters. Um, so like, like there, there's, there's a lot here and there's a lot of feelings. And this is where this story takes place in between those two. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you bring up, uh, what was the name of the place you just said? Trans what? Transibal. I was just recently having this conversation about fictional territories in comics that turn out to be kind of like a muddy collection of cliches and stereotypes. And I will say I prefer a fictional land to actually like, let's go to an actual place and misrepresent it. And I'm bringing this up simply because like you're talking about Transibal, you know, meanwhile, back in the 80s, I remember in a Generation 1 Transformers cartoon, there was the fictional land of, I kid you not, Carbomia, which is pretty bad. In a whole place where this whole universe is about transforming cars, they made a country called Carbomia. Carbomia. So that exists. So sometimes it is not <laughs> good. Sometimes it is <laughs> terrible. But I think it is worth pointing out that in Marvel Comics, Latveria is such a place, right? Madripoor. And, I, and I appreciate that. Madripoor, so we're not constantly right. saying evil, shady Shanghai streets, which, not well, great. Wakanda? Right, Wakanda, yeah. Krakoa! Yes. <laughs> Terra Verde, right? All of these are good good examples. Latveria specifically, and I and I think we need to kind of address, you know, the, the big elephant in the room when it comes to Peter David and, you know, separated from his great work in comics is obviously his controversial and straight up, you know, racist and a very unfortunate remarks about Romani people. I was literally and I in know the that room. For some people, that is a deal breaker. And I they're was like, literally I am there. not going to read anything else. It was oh the my worst God, day. Kidding? It was the worst, most awkward, horrifying day at a convention. Everywhere you went, someone and went. And must have just kept getting worse. Yeah. As he kept talking about well, it. It's and then like, you're after like you walking, walk out, like, they're like, did you hear what Peter did? And I'm like, yes, I was in the room. I'd like to just keep walking. And everybody, did you think of all people, monsters that beat their children? And I'm like, not what happened, but what he did was not much better. And like, right. it just kept going like that. And it was horrifying. It happened uh, at so, a New York Comic Con. It was a nightmare. So in that context, I just want to like take a step back from like the X factor of it all and just point out it's a little kind of awkward that yes, this isn't a story about the Romani people, but the fact that it's the Latverians kind of, you know, I don't, I've seen reads on Twitter that are like, wow, who let Peter David near this? And, you know, I, I'm not going to defend it, but I will just say it's kind of like hmm, maybe we could have done with something just a little bit different um but anyways but again even with that awkwardness i think he does strive to tell a story about kind of uh you know the difference between terrorists and freedom fighters and the oppressed people and you know so it's not a bad story but there are awkward tones in it it gets a little touchy for sure and just to give people a little background on what we've been talking about the original peter david run started in x factor number 70 x factor number 70 day of judgment serves as a transition issue between the, we'll say it, exiting regime and the new regime of the sort of Lobdell Nicieza, Claremont's there for three issues and then gets out of there, but Lee is still there, so don't worry, nah, he's only there for 11 issues and then he gets out. Eh, things are getting mucky, right? But and so let's, uh, let's also point into like that is kind of like the epilogue final issue of, yeah, of, of Muir Island, Muir Saga. Island Saga and really like the last issue pre Jim Lee's like Uncanny 281 and Jim Lee's X-Men number one. Yeah. And like, that's the point. Yeah. That it's was, a transition issue. Yeah. It was supposed to be a Chris Claremont wrapping up the end, but he kind of took his basketball 
call and went home a little early. And so Peter David, who was going to be the next, got to do an early ramp up in. And it's it's a very interesting historical artifact transition comic between two eras. Well, and I do want to point out that there is a lot of interesting discussion about who was writing what, when, and why. So Claremont right. came in because they felt... <laughs> Throughout uh, all of the Muir Island saga. Oh, and, pretty and much. Yeah. the leading up to it, Claremont comes in after Wheezy leaves X-Factor to assist Wills Portacio on scripting because Wills has cool ideas, but he's not a scripter. So Claremont comes in and writes out Baby Cable, a character that he's had miraculously little to do with, all considering the last five years at Marvel. And then he's told... Phenomenal four issues. Yeah. According to Claremont, he's told he cannot write both books. He is not so much told, oh, he's going to leave Uncanny a little early. He's told, no, you need to be get started on X-Men numbers one through three. That has to be going already. So the way he paints it, it was taken from him. And Nicieza walked into the right office at the right time and was given the opportunity to run the ball. It sort of kind of happened that then they were like, you just want to keep writing it, I guess. And so he just sort of kept writing it. Peter David's inclusion is so fascinating because I don't always know that what Peter David contributes is necessary. I think Peter David is currently doing Symbiote Spider-Man, which takes place during the Symbiote Spider-Man era. And now he's doing this. So he just keeps doing books that take place 20 and 30 years ago because Peter David's always the outside guy. He just knows where the bodies are buried. So no one's going to fire him. They're they're giving him the thanks grandpa paycheck um, that Claremont got. Yeah, yeah. Like there, we've seen this before. We've seen this with um, hell. It it led to the resurgence of Dan Jurgen's career. He was getting thanks grandpa paychecks and then he did a really fucking good on Lois and Clark after Convergence and he wound up back on big titles again, big boy titles again. But no, we've seen it with Demetrius and Griffin. Speaking of Demetrius, the guy who takes over when Pad leaves with Lobdell and then Bites. Lobdell jumping in and parasiting his way into big writings. But that's Lobdell. Also worth worth noticing, this is the pre-image era where the Marvel method started getting turned upside down because the Marvel method of the writer writes the plot, the artist panels it out, and then the writer comes back and scripts it. The artists who had started becoming bigger names than many of the writers were demanding to be able to do the plot as well. And then that was getting to the writers for scripting and particularly our image artists um, on a lot of these like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld um, and Willis was another one were ones who, you know, were flipping that in a way that we know was not like super comfortable for Claremont, although he was a part of it and, and definitely was part of the rolling writer cycle turmoil in this period in the Marvel office. I love that that period of time, that turmoil, John Byrne was asked about his inclusion in that era. And Speaking of garbage party. people from the 90s. Exactly. Speaking who can't people. stop doing the same thing. Um, he was asked <laughs> what it was like working on those three or four issues of X-Men he ultimately did before leaving. And he said it was legitimately harder than working with Chris Claremont. <laughs> and that's just my favorite thing I've ever heard. Because that's ridiculous. So it's it's also really interesting to compare. And this is something that Jay and Miles have pointed out in their early episodes when talking about the uh, Claremont era going from Cockrum to Byrne is that, you know, much of the emergence of Wolverine as a major character was because Byrne liked him better. And, and with following him. that Marvel, following that Marvel method where, you know, Claremont was giving the plot synopsis, Byrne plots it out. Wolverine winds up getting more.
more lines because Byrne is featuring him in more panels and front and center over other characters. Whereas Nightcrawler had been getting more dialogue previously because Cockrum liked drawing him as a more featured character in the panel. So, you know, that it's so wild to think compared to the way that scripts, how meticulously we expect scripts to be written for in certain lines today. That like this character was in the background. That was clearly something that this writer planned and meant to do for something coming seven issues in the like versus before where it was like, well, Wolverine had a lot of speaking points because the artist decided to draw him more. So then he just became the bigger fucking character. It's wild to think about. I was talking with one of my editors and they said, uh, so I like a lot of this dialogue, but uh, I feel like, you know, the artist that you're working with. So you are ready to throw out all of this dialogue and make it shorter. Right. And I was just like, we can't afford Tom Wozniakowski. You're going to need to write less. Well, and also <laughs> accessibility. Bring back big Claremontian blocks of, of tech, please. That would not have been possible without Tom Orzakowski being oh, yeah. the magician able Absolutely. to fit that shit in. I, I, wa- I will say one thing, like, before we even jump into the issue, I exceeding, like, it, progressively, I am enjoying X-Men Legends more and more. I think it's nice that there's a sandbox for these creators. I, and, and I also feel like X-Men Legends is kind of, like, targeted at exactly us. us. This, yeah. this, like, you know, demo that kind of grew up with it and is still really actively into it now or has come back to it hits all those nostalgia feels and you know i'll just say it i kind of like these guys playing in their own old sandbox where they're more comfortable doing their things than hey let's give peter david a book in the crocoan era i don't think i need that like i don't think i need that i don't think i need what you know walt simonson's fresh take on you know like i'm enjoying x-men legends and i think it's great like that these you know these creators are are getting you know a shot to to tell more stories i love the premise of it you know tying things up i love that they insert you know reference numbers for like which issue this is happening between i think that's those are great guardrails for these creative teams to to play in well then we'll see how you respond to the rumored upcoming claremont gambit solo you're fucking with me i'm not there's a rumor I, circling and it's around happening like now like it'll be but like does it take Krakoan place era. okay so that's can the have rumor if it takes solo, place in the krakowin era i am there it is or does the- it take place that is the rumor like the rumor is that it is x-men 265 and 266 it is like present right now it is not an x-men legends the rumor is claremont is coming back out of story retirement to write a gambit solo book this is interesting because his last thing was (laughs) the nightcrawler solo book that was by todd knock and with todd knock yeah was that was that when like nightcrawler was in heaven and they had to was that the no, 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 that's Jason Aaron's Astonishing X-Men. Yeah, that was just Astonishing X-Men 1 through 5. He comes back. He's in 6. Aaron leaves between 6 and 7. 7 is the Spider-Man and his amazing friends or Alpha Flight issue. I don't remember. Um, but then after 6, Nightcrawler goes over to his solo series by Claremont. And it's the resolution of his Crimson Pirate story. Oh, God. So uh, it's actually really cute. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it ties into Death of Wolverine, which yeah. as an event was okay. But as a celebration of a character by exploring the character characters shadow and vacuum was a really interesting way to play against type i think if you can tell a good story about a character without showing them you've done a really good job there's that sequence in that issue of marauders that will always perhaps be the best bishop ever where bishop threatens that the lightning is storm and so all of the pirates turn themselves in because they're afraid that that lightning really could be storm what a great storm story without ever showing her and i feel like death of wolverine kind of did that so the nightcrawler issues of that are good, but it is a pretty forgettable 2013 
solo the series. Same, in the same vein, Mystery and Madripoor, which I think was the best of the hunt for Wolverines. Um, yeah, also. For sure. For sure. For yeah, sure. I mean, listen, who knows? I, I'm here for it because Claremont's great. He doesn't always, you know, especially latter day Claremont, I know is not always like the right, uh, you know, the right stuff, but I'd be curious to see what he does with Gambit and hey, who knows, we might, we might, end, up with, might end up with Gambit X-Men. with tentacles, you guys. Gambit might end up with tentacles. It's been 50 years since he started X-Men. Like, latter day Claremont starts 30 years ago. Uh, like, uh, there's uh, latter day uh, and then there's latter, la- like, because post-existence. Hard to think about this. Like, Jim Lee's X-Men, Jim Lee's X-Men number one is closer to Stan Lee's X-Men number one than it is Jerry Duggan's X-Men number one. All right, I'm out of here. I guess. Yeah, the Sandman, seriously, the Sandman by Gaiman is closer to the Silver Age than the Sandman TV show is to the Sandman. Okay, so now I feel like that meme, I guess I'll die now. Yes. Because Well, if we're all ready yes. to die now, then time it's time is to a become, flat circle. It's time to become legends. And I think there's no better transition than into X-Men Legends 5 and 6. Now, we've kind of I do want to give a little meta comment. So I, on the series as a whole, before we go, because and once we turn into the issues, it's going to be on the issues. So I think that this line has done a fantastic job of matching current artists whose style and tone really match the feel of the original series. Oh, for not sure. Necessarily... That up and coming guy, Walt Simonson. I'm really glad they, they pulled that guy out of obscurity for numbers three and I hate four. hate you so much. I hate you so much. I'm... <laughs> I meant I, I was talking more Todd Knock than Brett. No, I agree. I totally agree. I was being silly. I'm sorry. Um, yes, and the and that that young whippersnapper Walt Simonson. So I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that I said I I counted Walt Simonson as a writer. Obviously, it should have been Wheezy. Walt was on art in the previous issue. So but they're they're so self correcting. They're so together. Yeah. On yeah. That. And I love it. I love that little storyline too. That was that was fun. Anyway, sorry, Josh. So I, I'm happy this exists. When we first started this, and we were talking about X Men Legends one and two, you know, we made the comparison to DC's retroactive, which is something that they did in around the time of Flashpoint and the launch of New 52, giving writers from each era chances to go back and tell kind of untold stories. So bringing creative teams back and letting them, you know, get you like a one last new Flash from the 70s story, one last new Green Lantern from the 90s story, no Superman from the 90s. Which for me, the 90s ones. The the 90s ones were the ones that I, you know, gravitated towards, obviously on me. But, But no, like it it's exciting to get a Teen Titans like new, similar to you know the Claremont Sienkiewicz, uh New Mutants War Children that they did you know a couple years mm-hmm. back. Like getting a Perez Wolfman Which Teen Titans from sequel. the '80s one shot was you know, and so these were nice, but specifically inconsequential, right? Specifically, like they would do nothing to change anything or be like, there's a reason why these stories didn't need to be told before. Like they had to be low stakes, and you're just grateful that like oh it's like I found an issue that I didn't read from 94 and I get one more new comic from them I uh, I had higher expectations for them you know we were kind of promised on this series that it was going to be writers who you know didn't get to finish their run had kind of stories that they were setting up and never got to finish and they totally delivered with Nicieza and the Adam Mech story in one and two uh, since then we've gotten the uh, Simonson X-Factor story and the Peter David X-Factor story that 
that have felt very much like those DC retroactive. You didn't miss anything, but here's a new one from the crew from the creator, which is more disappointing for me on this because of the way Peter David left X Factor. Peter David left and he did get a chance in his X Factor investigations to go back and, you know, obviously deal with characters and types and other things. But he left. Uh, Go go back and, you know, make sure Rain is homophobic. He left. I mean, I I love her, (laughs) but like she kind of. But she's the worst. See, like she's mutant phobic. The worst. Like Reverend Craig, fuck that girl up. I was hoping that we were going to get something kind of from his near the end where Labdell kind of just spun off and was like, fuck whatever Peter David was working on. We're going to go in this new direction. And then I'm going to keep random. Random (laughs) Yeah, like I was really hoping for more of, of that. Like, okay, great. Like if you're telling me Peter David's coming back for a book that's being delivered on this promise, go tell a story from that era where he left with threads. I was thinking we were going to get that the way we did with Nicias and Adam Mac. And the fact that we got a DC retroactive style story of ill consequence is a little disappointing to me. Well, I actually reread the other legends before reading this one because I wanted to be super sharp on it. And one of the things that I found was kind of exactly what you're saying. I even felt that they sort of kind of tried to skirt the fact of the truth, which was they did do a big thing, but they kind of did a big thing badly. They gave us the identity of the third Summer's brother, bumping Vulcan up to the fourth Summer's brother with the possibility of a fifth Summer's brother anytime we need it. But they Damn took it. all of our memories of it away in uh in a, a way that was sort of saccharine. You said this story was going to matter. They even kind of said no alternate universes, no mind wipes. Like they even kind of said this will matter. And then they made the it till they- issue two without going back on that promise. And then you know. I actually do Wait, think but that- with the Simonsons, we got a little more Hodge apocalypse interaction. That was cool. I, I, that's what I was going to say. Know, I liked three I'm and there four for more that. than one and two, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. One so, and two, I so thought was... Let's, one and two, I was really scale. annoyed with at the time because it was like, okay, yeah, we're getting Adam X, but like, you're not even going to mention the possibility of Vulcan or like what? I, one and two did on what was they promised. Did. I just Vulcan didn't was in, Vulcan was in the family tree. Yeah, we got a database. And they said brother. Yes, I did appreciate the data page. You're, you're right. He was, so he was included. Let's there. weigh these on a scale, though. Because this was part of our conversation of X-Men Legends 2 at the time. So now, yeah. you know, we're a couple months past. Consequences with mind wipe versus no consequences, no mind wipe. Because the mind wipe, look, even if they don't want to do that, the more consequential you make what you go back and tell, you have to either hide it from every character or have them mind wiped in order for it to not fuck up 30 years of stories after. I've got it. Like, right. I've got it. I've got it. And hear me out. Why? What the fuck was Krakoa doing from 1975 to 2018 with the exception of three or four appearances there? These things should have randomly happened on Krakoa, been forgotten when they left Krakoa, and the Hoxpox era has them remembered. There was no benefit to it being in a cornfield in one and two. I don't actually think New York raised the stakes in three and four because nothing about the city ever mattered. They didn't interact with buildings or people. It was all about the ship. Here, the fact that it was vaguely racist by putting it in Latveria was problematic. Why not have it be a settlement on Krakoa that is threatening the indigenous people so a 90s environmentalist group rose up? You could have had these things come due because of the magic of Krakoa.
Krakoa instead of having us forget. It's so boring no. to tell me your idea is so good I should forget it. I what disagree. If, I, I appreciate. I appreciate black neuralizer at the end of every <laughs> at the end of every even numbered issue. Sure. The reason I think Krakoa is so brilliant and and this whole Krakoan era is because it was kind of the forgotten storyline. Like Krakoa, the Living Island was such a kind of ridiculous and audacious storyline when it first happened in Giant Size, and nobody ever picked up that thread again, except for I guess like when you get the baby Krakoa that was like living in the mansion. Well, like and it there was actually, the lawn for a while. Don't forget when it was the lawn. They actually did that, do like a, a Krakoa backstory in 2016 and explained how it actually connected to the Howling Commandos, and it okay. was a thing called Journey into Mystery, the mystery of Krakoa, and it just got thrown out in 2018 for Hickman. So it actually had been explored. They just ignored it. Yeah. So I don't. I don't want to see like the forgotten X Factor mission when the team went to Krakoa. Like straight up. I don't. I don't want us to like muck with Krakoa's past. I'm more concerned with Krakoa's present and the future. So I. I agree with Josh. Like it would have been nice to see some relevant plot threads tied up. Um. But I think that you know there's a third rail there that you don't want to grab because you. It can't be too consequential because then it knocks the timeline off. Right. But, like you can't. But no one used Rhapsody and Random for 30 years. Like right. give me an awesome Rhapsody random story 100%. that doesn't fuck anything up because no yes. one touched them. Yeah. One like, through four had Cyclops. One and two and five and six had Havoc. Seven and eight have Wolverine. This was the most creative lineups. And that's part of the problem is that when you when you make it revolve around Summers Brothers and Wolverine with the incredibly complicated and convoluted chronologies that those characters have over so many years and so many writers, it's very difficult to do anything without butterfly effecting like you can go i think this series would be better served focusing on those lost characters from those times as opposed to major characters from those times because the people that you're appealing to who love those runs that's what we miss the most anyway like the people who are like i miss 90s x factor i miss this i miss that we've been getting fucking cyclops and wolverine like it's not like i haven't had any Cyclops since X Factor 58. Like, right. No, but you know what I haven't had a lot of is random and Adam, Adam X. Adam X. That's why we fucking wanted the first two issues. Adam X. And then he, he was a side character in it. Yeah, I agree. Having these like these little mutant freedom fighters or whatever that nobody knew and nobody cared about is absolutely a missed opportunity. You're 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 right about that. Like honestly, a part of me would have loved to see another, you know, another session with Doc Samson when he was, you know, the team site. Psych- psychology great call like that could have been fun but then I, I even as i'm saying that i'm like you know what though that was such a good tight little story like maybe that's just best left as is like don't try to reinvent it and fuck it up so you know i i'm of, of mixed minds with it but i i agree i could have used some more nostalgic pulls rather than these these characters that we have never seen and will never see again and I feel the like interesting he- thing will be if anybody starts in present day krakoa starts bringing back these characters that have now been seen in the past. And I think he actually did kind of reinvent the device because you're right. I, I, When you said Doc Samson, I was like, oh yeah, bring me Doc Samson. And you were like, but better that he didn't sully it. And I was like, okay, fair point. And then you said, you know, better he didn't reinvent it. Well, he kind of did. This this trial kind of back and forth kind of gave me classic X-Factor vibes. Yeah. So yeah. X-Men Legends 5 and 6 see the X-Factor team giving a deposition about an investigation that they were sent out to that they frankly kind of botched out in Latveria involving Doom experimenting on some potentially latent mutants 
and giving them powers, fucking them up, them wanting revenge. It's very 1992 in that regard. And that's and really the, the whole plot. Telling, the, the narrative style does fit with, it's something Peter David used a couple times in that era and on that run, which, which also adds to the kind of nostalgia feel, which I like. Flag on the field, this actually takes place at the Latvian embassy, not in Latveria. Totally true. So which is US, why the United on... Nations had to get involved and why we got, right. we got a really cool, I, I was a big fan of, and I'm, I'm usually not a big Pietro fan, and I don't think Peter David's Pietro is necessarily the best Pietro either. Maybe 90s oh, better love, than, 90s way better I, than I love I'm thinking of 2000s. X Factor Investigations Pietro was a bad shit, but I 90s like, Pietro did have some good stuff. I like bitchy yeah, Pietro was, was, over petulant Pietro. But I loved, I loved the blasting the Fantastic Four and the X-Men for their politicization and handing the bat. Like, and the, the, Avengers, the, the Pietro the explanation the on that yeah. was, was really good. And, you know, because of the way we never learn from our geopolitical mistakes in the real world, and so we continue making them over and over and over and over again. See Afghanistan in the 1980s, see Afghanistan in the 1990s, see Afghanistan in the 2000s, see Afghanistan in the 2010s, see Afghanistan fucking today. You can make something like this that plays to like what it was like in the 90s and relevant statement on what it's like today because it's a fucking same. So speaking of the fucking same, I'm so, so originally we were going to do this five and then do this six. And then we said five and six kind of go together so good. No reason to split them up. And I'm so glad that we did. Josh, that was such a great call on your part. And I'm so glad we were able to make this work out because I am haunted by the comparisons between X-Men Legends 5-6 and X-Factor 10. There are a number of fascinating parallels, I feel, between the two stories. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting is I maybe had never noticed that there is such a fine speck of distance. Like when Sublime Beast said, did you think you'd live forever, you little speck? Like that level that level of speck of difference between Pietro and Doom. I guess I just had never seen how close their, their mentality was. And the differences between North Star in Leah Williams and David Baldion's beautiful X Factor so outshines the petulant narcissism of Quicksilver when underserved. Now, this was good Quicksilver. I actually really enjoyed this particular Quicksilver, but it made me think of bad Quicksilver. And David whole... Baldion is a good comp for Todd Nock, too, as an artist. Ooh. I would put Todd Nock, you know, we had compared David Baldion when we were talking about the, um, the Dodsons, Terry and Rachel Dodson in our Jay Ferber interview, we had compared that to uh, artists like Umberto Ramos and David Baldion. And I think that Todd Nock is like a blend of the kind of cartoony styles and um, and also does what all three of those artists do really well, which is to say to make characters beautiful or beautiful even in nakedness without feeling like mm. exploited or dirty. Because look at this big, beautiful man. There is a vulnerability to that roid monster you know as a guy who's like oh look at that beautiful roid monster when guys are like that gains gains are suspicious i'm like good for him right so as a guy who appreciates that the subtle delicate beauty 
of how he captured Guido there is a testament to subtly sexualizing in a beautiful way men too in a way we didn't used to get. And this writer artist pair do have a history. They did a long run on DC's Young Justice together um, where and so you know we're also talking about a writer who has an artist who has worked for this writer and a writer who has scripted for this artist before giving you you know it's not a new pairing of you know here's a new artist for this you know that'll compliment like we saw with Nisiez and Booth. This is you know someone you worked with on another line on another story but who would fit and complement this story nicely and so you get to bring that working relationship over. I love that. So they, now they work well together like Guido and Madrox which to me were kind of like the stars at least of the first issue like they're we're talking about stories and deep character pulls or whatever but there's another part of the allure of this whole X-Men Legends title that's just like give me some of that good old shit and like watching Madrox multiply to climb over a force field was great watching Guido fighting through you know mystic hellfire or whatever and just absorbing the shit out of it and and then you know being the strong big tough guy but also it hurt Guido you know, like those those moments to me were just like oh that's Peter like Peter David Guido it? is always the skipper to Madrix's Gilligan and it's perfect I love yes. that And, you know, speaking yeah. of people that represent specific dualities, dyads in the X-Force, if we will, I want, that was just for you, Josh, I want to, <laughs> I want to touch on the fact that in another parallel between X-Factor and this story, one of the things that defined Leah Williams' run on X-Factor, especially at the end, was the ghosts of the past and seeing your death. Aurora, you know, was able to understand her death. I mean, it ultimately turned out that she killed herself to prove a point but whatever and David was killed and investigated his death but we saw both of their deaths both of the things that haunt them that propel them forward now here we saw it in the form of a mutant psychically manipulating people but Polaris and Rain were both confronted with kind of specters of their trauma that propels them forward I am so fucking bothered that I feel like Rain is in the exact same place right now in comics whereas I feel like Polaris under Lee Williams and Dugan and Hickman and all of these expert pencil and pen teams that are coming together to set her free. I feel like this Lorna is of the past, but I am haunted 100%. by how stunted we, Rain is. We have uh, no, talked yeah, about this with like, Rain before. If Rain is not poorly served by a story, she isn't served at all. Like, no, yeah. I, I'm not even going to get into the Rain of it all because Rain is just the worst and it's through no fault necessarily of her own. Like she's got these moments that she's sweet and endearing, but yes, she's she's constantly underserved but i couldn't agree with you more uh nico that this polaris is stripped of all of the development and all like you know that all her growth and we go back to again a polaris who was underserved by a a writer and you know when she when she doesn't have you know she can't free reign because well she's held by ropes and and tied to wood so i can't do anything like it's just like she can't have free reign not like she couldn't free reign i got so confused (laughs) yeah yeah i'm jumping ahead a little but you know ultimately well, eventually rain and- gets captured by by the freedom fighters and and i keep calling them that and i hope that's not you know an offensive term i'm just oh you know what i'll call them the latvarian liberation front like like havoc suggested i think that's good the llf but you know like polaris now nowadays could raise the whole building if she has to like but it's also fair too like, like oh, if you had, you know if you had-
had gone back and written the Polaris from Jerry Duggan's X-Men number two into right. this issue, oh, it would have not like this it is a Polaris work. at this point in the comics is, you know, going and looking at like passing by jewelry stores in New York and wondering when Alex is going to propose. And this is the Polaris who spent the last five fucking years being under someone's mind control, whether it was Malice yep. or the Shadow, Shadow King, King, like yep. from one fucking fire into another. And, and I mean, she's not going to really start gaining that kind of step up autonomy until the Onslaught era. Like until like we're not really even going to hear. We've got a good 50 issues in this before we see her like break free. It's when Havoc becomes mind controlled by Dark Beast and yep. shit that we even yep. really start seeing her like stop looking at herself as like a second to whatever he said, yep. like waiting for Havoc to make the call on things. So, well, and you know, one, one, I'm very grateful that there's one beat we did not revisit in this, and that would be Lorna's eating disorder and like body dysmorphia, which comes up back then. And, you know, I, I, I recognize that that's like a part of her history. And I think that's an interesting thing. And I think uh, it'd be interesting if another writer, preferably a woman, eventually kind of revisits that with Lorna possibly. But I'm really happy that we didn't have to see Peter David's, you know, fresh 2021 take on Lorna's eating disorder from the 90s because that is just sounds like a while we're, while we're disaster Lorna um, I watched the final four episodes of Wolverine and the X-Men last night with my boys we've been working through it on Disney Plus that um, is the best so good. run of episodes with the exception of that Hulk episode earlier on if you could just and, throw and that in there no it's the can best I, can I tell you that yeah. Lorna future Lorna showing up in the dystopian future and laying waste to an army of sentinels so good is how is it that Lorna who had been around since the fucking silver that was that gets her best fucking moment in a cartoon before she ever gets it in the comic. We can't seem to talk about Wolf, X Men Legends five and six. So, but the other thing about I think okay, but in our defense, in our defense, <laughs> the more interesting thing to talk about these comics is the shit outside of them than unfortunately the, the shit inside yeah. of them. Well, and that's the, the outside of this story surrounding shit meta commentary is far more interesting than what we actually got on these 40 pages. Oh, for certain. And one of the things that I think is most interesting about that is the way a number of these characters are still central. We still see Rain struggling with child-based traumas in the form of her missing child and her it would appear abusive husband in some ways. You know, he really did kind of play mind games with her, kind of like Reverend uh, Craig. So, you know, it's still, she's the victim of men and now there's men who won't let her have her child back. So Rain's sort of still in the same place. Alex is still damaged at not being Scott over in the pages of Hellions. We have Lorna finally coming due on herself. But I think the person who I can kind of draw the directest line from who they are here to their growth is Multiple Man. I feel like X-Core's Multiple Man pays off the promise of X-Factor Investigation Multiple Man in a way that propels the character forward. I can see Howard's Multiple Man in Peter David's Multiple Man. It's sort of a direct line way. I feel like this book really is finally kind of writing characters that feel like they matter to the present because that X-Factor story kind of meant nothing. Not in a bad way. It's my favorite of the six, but it kind of meant nothing. How do you guys feel about the other characters like Alex, who is so damaged, or Jamie, as they appear currently in relation to why this story was vital now? I, I, I want to say one thing about Lorna that I think made this a vital and important story. Um, so, you know, I guess it's in the second issue of 
of this. When Lorna comes across whichever of the Latvian Liberation Front that creates the ghosts, and she comes across her mom. This ties but- in with the retcon from Peter David's X-Factor investigation that went back and, yes, made it so Lorna's mom was having an affair with Magneto, and mm-hmm. the dad got mad, and there was a fight on the plane, and then, you know, Lorna kind of panicked and caused it to crash, but Magneto came in and right. rescued her and asked, was it Mastermind? To believe, mind yeah, wipe her of it so she didn't grow up with the trauma, which well, could be Mesmero. Kind of, it was a it was a nice or Mesmero, one of the yeah. um, OG brother relators, and yeah, it did a good. I, I thought it was a really good take on that Peter David one of kind of the balance of you know '60s Magneto as like the human underneath, but he doesn't always show everyone because he wants to kind of puff his chest out as like "fuck you," I'll be the monster you think I am. Yeah, and obviously Peter David wrote that, and it's always nice when a writer doesn't forget what they wrote and um, contradict their own continuity. So <laughs> now, um, I, yeah, this, this was, that was a good tie to that. I, I and, and before time, because he's writing this to have taken place before that. Now I do have a question about doom. Cause I feel like Josh, I know, you know, um, doom better than me by far. And you know, Artur, I'm not sure your relationship with, you know, doom so much, but between sword, which is an X title guardians of the galaxy, where he's appearing regularly as a regular member of the team, which is tying into sword. Cause of last annihilation and because of the hellfire gala i have had a lot 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 of doom lately yeah that guy that guy who you know in some realities has goat legs you know for, for whatever for, reason for to answer your question about my relation to doom again time travel to the 80s the secret wars toys dr doom was one of the coolest ones hands down by far and i kid you i mean he doesn't have any of his paint on him or whatever but that that figure is still in a box like that i've given to my nephew and uh, that they don't even play with anymore, but it still exists. So I always had like an affection for Doom. His just like aesthetic is awesome. I think even a Delso Corona I, Doom print inside. Doom was my uh, my older boy's first comic love. Yeah, Doom is just Doom is just like one of the greatest villains. You know, he's just. I think one thing Peter David missed the mark on here is like I could have done with about fifty percent more Doom monologuing. Like, what is Doom if not a great orator? And and we kind of got a watered down version of that. I. Do, and it would have I played really... perfect with the impatient Pietro that he was with all the time because Pietro has no fucking patience for that shit. Nope. Um, yep. I thought they were a good, good character block together. I thought I really liked the way Doom and Pietro played. I, I it also could have been even better. I enjoyed the, oh, we're fighting Doom. Psych, it's a Doom bot. And then, oh, here's another Doom bot. No, it's actually Doom. Like, you know. And that's a little more 80s than 90s. Just about every fucking Doom appearance in the 80s goes like that. Um, yeah. But so how do you feel about the Doom Clusion in X-Men? I like it because the X-Men are trying to step up their game. Now they're not just mutants, so they're not just kind of sciencey, but they're magic and there's Mysterium and there's dimension hopping. It kind of seems like the X-Men are trying to turn Krakoa into like their own Doom Island in a lot of ways. They really are touching on a lot of Doom's shit. And it makes me wonder if this is part of a bigger attempt to cement the X-Men and Doom a little bit closer especially considering two years ago's X-Men Fantastic Four. Well, that's something that I would have, I mean, I I kind of expected coming into this because, you know, the greatest writer of Doctor Doom in comics history is one Jonathan Ezekiel Hickman. So what he's done with that character throughout his Fantastic Four run, throughout his New Avengers, through Secret Wars, this is a character that he loves very, very much. And he has fleshed out and made so 
so like he's made us totally buy that like anything whether you like it or not anything that slots done with doom in his run is only possible because of the hickman run hickman gave us uncle doom he is he is uncle doom forever because of that and it totally buys and plays and we like if you've read it all you get it like he loves that girl in a totally like parental okay yes it's not creepy yes it's just just unsettling but it's not creepy no like if if reed and sue disappeared like he would yes give me my babies go to him and he would take care of her and be okay yes i even think he'd take care of franklin in an avuncular ish way he doesn't have patience for franklin's whininess he loves the the same way it eats away at his core of being every time reed richards said something that he didn't think of first he is doom is so fucking proud behind that mask every time Valeria says something he didn't think of first he gets to he gets almost that grandfatherness of being able to like spoil and love because I don't have to put up with you all the time like if you were my own child he gets to be an uncle like he is uncle doom and gets to have all the perks with none of the down like with her and she's everything he would have wanted from a child everything Kristoff never was like the doom Valeria relationship is fucking great and it, it it's given us more to him as a character like so doom showing up in x-men was something i expected i expected it to be more under the pen of hickman us getting more of a hickman doom but i really like i really like doom kind of respecting krakoa's autonomy in the way that he's always wanted other people to respect latveria's autonomy and i thought that it made like the x-men fantastic war miniseries was i wanted so much more it could have been better it did not serve characters the best especially when it was a replay of the OG Fantastic Four X-Men miniseries. The Dodsons just felt like their hearts weren't in it. Zardsky's characterization felt like he had three voices to pick from. It just felt rushed in a way that wasn't fair to anybody. And we're at a point where if we're getting Kitty Franklin dynamics, so much of it should be based around Rachel Summers. The fact that one of them is her future husband and the other is her future wife. Like, I just, yeah. The encroaching on that, the need from James Robinson and now Dan Slott and now Chip Darsky to know no other thing to do with Sue other than just make her an angry turfy Karen like I I just because I love Fantastic Four and I love X-Men if you're going to give me a Fantastic Four X-Men story you can't be making one of them miserable motherfuckers I agree it needs to be a celebration of familial love it shouldn't be a it I I don't want to be reading X-Men Fantastic Four Osage County that's not what I'm here for. See, I guess I'm in the minority because I, 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 we're not here to talk about X-Men and Fantastic Four, but like I, I kind of enjoyed that run. I thought it was imperfect to say the least, but I I got what he was trying to put down. I, I understood like, you know, what he was saying, the, you know, could you try to be less mutant kind of vibe? I know it wasn't, um, I, I know it was very like triggering for some people and I, I respect that and I know it's not for everybody, but it, I got it. I got what he was trying to say and, and you know, I enjoyed it for what it was, but it, uh, it did feel very rushed and it did and I agree we could have used some Rachel Summers in there so I want to ask you guys a question about the future of this book right before anything else before you know free for all final thoughts the first trade is issues one through six we definitely know that they've solicited a 7-8 by Larry Hama featuring Hammer Time which I couldn't be more excited about I I mean I'm doing the Hammer Time big baggy pants because his Wolverine is one of my favorite but 
I do think there's a danger in this series that I hadn't considered till I thought about Hama coming back on to do more Wolverine. Hama is still writing the characters from his original run now. During a recent crossover, the Iron Man event where everything got super Iron Man-Z, Iron Man 2020, he wrote LCD. And, right, he did I Wolverine. Right. So he's still doing traces of his original run now. Nisi I mean, is it any different than Peter David's uh, Maestro, Pac, Romano, whatever the fuck like? Exactly. And Nisieza just did another infinite online only Marvel Comics exclusive Cable Deadpool online two years ago. So he's even still touching on the same X-Force threads through Deadpool. If they just put one through six in a trade, then there's definitely going to be at least a 9-10 for a second trade. They would never leave two issues uncollected. They would never collect just two issues. So I've got to assume there is at I least plans. I would love a two-issue prestige tied double like 12 what that like was. I'm with you. I actually loved when they would do the like scripts uh, and commentary and like the 84 page floppies. Like, I think you should really go back to like those 108 page monsters, Marvel. Push them to the max, right? But I found a Reign of Terror at an LCS recently. And so it's a big store here in Central Florida that has, um, speaking of under Reign, either being not served or underserved in stories. And of course, they they have a dollar room, they have a dollar back issue room, and they also have an old trade section where old trades are essentially discounted because they're cover price with prices not adjusted for inflation. And so, you know, you can find some cool old trades there for whatever, like $9.99, $11.99, like they're just cover price. And so I picked up Reina Terra expecting to pay the cover price of $5.99. And I brought it up to the counter and the guy rang it up as a dollar as if it was from the dollar room. And so I was like, oh, I'm like, actually, I'm like, I pulled this from the old trade section. This wasn't a dollar room book. And uh, and he, he looked at it and he's like, this isn't worth five. <laughs> no, and, it has and that- I couldn't argue with him. No, of course not. Like, You're not wrong. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Marvel really wanted to do those prestige but style vertigos. That would be perfect for these. That, oh, yeah. Like Reign of Terror type size style, like would be perfect for the uh, complete story. The Marvel must haves that they did for a few years, where if a book sold out too fast and digital hadn't picked up just yet, they would do uh, NYX one through three in a single issue for four ninety nine. Then they did NYX. Four five in a single issue for four ninety nine. Then they did Runaways one through three in a single issue for four ninety nine. And these were to help people catch up before the first trade came out. And I thought it was a cute idea. But where do you think this series might even go? We've touched on sort of generic nineties X Men. We touched on specifically Wheezy's X Factor. Now we've gone to Pad's X Factor. We're heading to Wolverine. What classic runs do you think we might see a return? to. I'd love to see more X-Men from the 90s that maybe didn't get as much love. Some John Francis Moore X-Force, some Generation X, maybe around the Ferber years would be Ferber Gen X is one of my big. Right? I what else do you guys want to see happen? Cable would definitely be one of them. Yeah. Cable with Baby Hope from because I don't remember how to pronounce the name off my head. I unfortunately want a lot of runs that nobody should ever go back to for creative staff Exactly. That, that's that I think that right there is like is like so the, the minefield of this. Like there's certain storylines and, and stuff that like it'd be fun to, you know, revisit and get a little more Conan, Revanche, Psylocke. But like, do we want to go back and get, I think, was that Lobdell? Like, like, Lob Del. If you're talking about I don't want to see a Lobdell book. I don't want to see a Lobdell book. I don't want to see a Rob Liefeld book, which I know would be kind of like, oh, well, this was that air. Like, I don't want to see it. 
like Jeff Loeb well, And book. that's the thing is the biggest it's answer tricky. for these is like, if we do Alpha Flight, it should be John Byrne. If we do Gen X, like who wouldn't love a Lobdell Chris Boccolo Gen X? Yes. But we can't do Lobdell. <laughs> like, I would like, love to see Gen X though. Like that, I, I got to say like, yeah, I love Lobdell. How sucks, about, but... how about Siegel? Was it Siegel and Joe Mad with the Maro Celia Reyes maggot? If I could get more from the incredible era that was Uncanny 351 to 359 and X-Men mm-hmm. 70 to 79, I'd be yeah, thrilled. X-Men 70 to 79, right? That was yeah. Eagle and was it Joe Matt on art? Uh, let's check. So for X-Men... For no, X-Men 70 to 79, we have Joe Kelly and Jorge Gonzalez with Bill Roseman Kelly and Joe Casey right. with art by Pacheco, Johnson, Garcia, Brome, and Lopresti. And then right. on the- Siegel un- had picked up Uncanny on yeah. 351. Siegel was for- the uncanny side. Kelly was the um, adjectiveless side. Yeah, yeah, the Joe Kelly X-Men run from the seven- adjectiveless 70s. It had- I got one. Let's let's go back to Grant Morrison. I, I would love to see what they did, you know, what they would do with like two or three issues of X-Men Legends. Like, Wouldn't we all? And like, where, where would you, you know, plug that in? Like, would we get more of like, here comes tomorrow and like the future, you know, that timeline that could be awesome. Like, I would love to see a little more Grant Morrison. According to Grant, the story was going to switch teams very slightly. They were going to pick up on Polaris's inclusion in the new world storyline. And the story was going to continue forward sans Jean plus Lorna. So that's what would have happened according to Morrison. Give it to me. Yes. Give me that. But I mean, that would be a, what if story like that would be a couldn't it have happened not that it did happen that's that's your new x-men forever not yeah and that <gasps> makes it so tricky nico 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 that's me what about de felipe and weir okay um like don't even fuck with me on that because if we could go you. back that, that that's, that's so you. gets me if we could go back to new x-men academy x and all of those little soap opera kids oh, yes. it was like mutant melrose place and yes. those kids like i understand so many people having a passionate, affectionate mad on for Kyle and Yost. I Talk get about it. someone who had plans that were being threaded and never got to go to fulfillment and Ever. can tie up things and, and cover like that he didn't get to in the past. Like that is a perfect fit for this. And they yeah. were a married couple. Hopefully they're still married and they can do it together and you know bring in a LaRocca or a LaPresti or somebody still from that era still kind of working. I think the only thing is I definitely don't want to see Claremont on this book I feel like putting Claremont in this book would immediately overshadow anyone else's contributions inherently because now granddad came on. Everybody else is getting an ass whooping. It just feels a little too big to ever let Claremont have his hands on this. He should just get his own thing. Like always. Uh, you know what? Like I, 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 I'll disagree with that. Like if, if, if you give me Claremont, like I would love to see him do something just totally off the beaten path. Give me, okay. you know, two or three issues of strictly in the Morlock tunnels, Ooh. character development, just something that like could have happened. We were never, we never had visibility to it, okay. uh, but that could be interesting. You know, the, something. The problem from, too like is that time he's already been given, thing. he's been given so many opportunities to go back and do this yeah. already that like, if he hadn't done X-Men forever, this would make more sense for him. Right. Originally, there had been a Rachel Gray miniseries Ooh, that was yeah. planned post Wolverine killing her in Uncanny. 
Annie and before Mojo Mayhem. That was supposed to be the bridge from when you see her in like Spiral's workshop there. To when you see and her they even like started drawing oh, it and yes. it was working and they just didn't like if he was to go back and tell the Rachel in between Uncanny and Mojo Mayhem, that would be a great two issues Claremont here that would tie in and, and be a perfect fit. Two things. I would love to see anything Mojo World. That would be that could be kind of cool. Like give me give me basically like a long shot one shot straight up kill for that just long shot spiral mojo mojo to the sequel like yeah that that sounds like all the major domos all the major domos yeah yeah that that sounds really fun give me a sage specific story stage when she was a background character at the hellfire club for sure give me a whole fucking thing of sage like infiltrating and you know sabotaging some sebastian shaw plot or something like give me more sage because one thing that Claremont did beautifully with Extreme X- X-Men, which I know is, you know, hit or miss, was Sage. Like, he made Sage one of the coolest characters, and uh, I can never have enough Sage. So, Sage, Spiral, Longshot, all of these sound like good Claremontian options. And I even want to comment that it, it falls into my Wolverine camp. Number one, there's this big thing that they never actually specified until I think it was like the 2000s that Batman's parents were shot at the opera. Prior to that, it was just the theater. and most. It of was the- a movie theater. Yeah, was- it was Go- usually a movie theater and now now that we are 20 some years since it it is the antonio bandera zorro that is that is new canon now they were going to see the antonio bandera zorro based on how bad time has been to us i really i killed arturo that's for real are you for real are you just like are you being clever or is that serious well no like people like to joke all the time about how like if batman's about this old and this happened when he was this age that like these would have been like the movies he probably went to see and one of the the more common ones the last couple of years has been like he probably went to see Space Jam but Mask of Zorro came out what was it 97 or 99 or something like late like we're we're at the point where because it used to be Zorro because young Bruce Wayne was a huge Zorro fan and that was, it was someone even did it maybe it was the animated series or Bruce Taylor someone did a thing though where they were like going to see Zorro because it was like old black and white Zorro and now it would be Antonio Bandera Zorro okay so this that would have been the movie his dad was taking him little Thomas Wayne was taking Bruce Wayne to see on the night that they were killed. This drives me insane when people like focus in on the sliding timeline or the sliding time scale. It gives me a fucking aneurysm because in Marvel, we're in Marvel in Earth 616. So I think you got to kind of compress time a little differently and accept that no, this isn't our Earth, real Earth's history. You know what I mean? So I get it, but like it drives me insane. Like some things you just kind of kind of not worry about it. And just that man grew up it. watching Antonio Banderas as well. So I bring up Batman because we know his origin at the start, right? So we know that Batman got his powers from brooding, right? And he's always, you know, very uh, Phantom of the Opera. And so Wolverine, all we knew was he had stupid hair. And then they go in and they give us, and what I do is so incredibly pretty, in the pages of Wolverine Origin and then Origin 2 and Origins, the payoff of the things we always vaguely knew about Wolverine were really disappointed. I am not an origin fan having nothing to do with anything, but it becomes River Song. Obviously, she was the doctor's wife. You mean Melody Pond? Right? I mean, like, obviously, there were just so many things where River Song, Melody Pond, Body of Water music, Body of Water music, like, 
you couldn't make it interesting because we knew the ending due to choreography. How many stories are there left that have been hinted at or nudged toward? Like we went into the third Summers Brothers story being like, they're going to conclude the third Summers Brothers story. It's over. What is there left to tell? What are we hankering for? We came up with a list of things we're interested in, but what out there in X canon isn't Wolverine's backstory? What isn't going to be a letdown? And Gambit because they shy away from Gambit doing bad things. But like we have not, it's been danced around a lot, but like we have not gotten good, like the type of Gambit that would take the job with the Marauders. We need Gambit next. One thing I do not want to see, and speaking of Wolverine's backstory, is anything to do with Romulus. I reject the whole freaking Romulus storyline. Like Weapon X was a very compelling backstory and, and all the memory wipes give you a lot of leeway to go back and tell great stories or whatever. The Romulus plotline is like, in my opinion, better left forgotten. It's almost like, you know, Nightcrawler's Draco. Like, I didn't need that. I don't want that. It comes and, back and to I this in to terms ignore of... There's stories that I just, whoop, I don't like that. Throw it in the and trash. And this is bin. what we said earlier and is one of the things that is kind of hurting this book right now is that we're focusing on Wolverine and Summer's Brothers. Yeah. And those are two combo like as it is. We need, like, this title would be much better off focusing on underserved characters. Like, if it did stories focusing on Gambit backstory and Rachel backstory and like if you went in on these characters like you know what how about Shan in Vietnam like like we could go to places with this that have not been delved into and serve those characters with old creative teams in ways that like none of us are like god I can't believe I haven't gotten any Wolverine stories lately like right serve us with the characters that we've been missing like give us more maggot give us more Amara give us you know there is so much time all of those characters random boom boom Amara how about in between when they just fell off the board and then when a lot of them showed up like fucking homeless people living on Utopia like after the X-Men had abandoned it like there's tons of underserved gaps that could give us compelling stories previously with old creative teams on characters that were neglected oh yeah it does not need to be the Summers Brothers not a retcon book. I got a request. Give me Black Tom, Juggernaut, Pyro, and Avalanche double date. Crime Spree slash double date. Like, yeah. give me give me some old school, like, give me you know, g- give me some of like give me a Freedom Force story, for Christ's sake. Like, <gasps> just a fun, like that time that Freedom Force got deployed to do some underhanded, crooked shit. When Mystique and Spiral were on a team together. And I think the concern is that we're saying oh, we have all these great stories that we could tell. This book was pitched as the stories they never got to tell. This book was pitched. We're here because they're not doing that. But I feel like Marvel would have a hard time justifying. Oh, Peter David's been sitting on this two-part random story for 30 years. That's not the byline they can sell to investors, even though it's the byline that makes sense to us. I still think this book should just be digital exclusive weekly and deal with it. Then it comes out in trade eventually. Digital exclusive to six months later in trade. Exactly. I just don't know that I see too much more of a future on this book. I enjoyed the first two. I enjoyed the second two. I enjoyed the third two, but I can definitely say having been on 
all six issues of this book that I can say for certain. I like talking about it with you guys more than I like the book. I like and, the and that's controversy. What we said earlier, the outside is more interesting than the inside. Yeah. I like the loud banter that it makes us argue about things because new things get you passionate. Old things keep you angry. It's hard to talk about new things without getting like, but you're a fuckhead. You know what I mean? Like, so you watch the, you, you go back to the old stuff and you can be like, but I think you're an asshole. <laughs> and like, you can be different about it. Outside of fandom stoking, I think my result on X-Men Legends 1 through 6 after a trade's worth is kind of meh, but I'm glad I bought it. Are you guys going to keep yeah, buying it? I mean, yeah. The first, yeah, I, I yeah. probably will. You it's know, marketed it's like to the, us. It, it is. just, it yeah. could be more. It's disappointing because it's under serving. Well, and, and, and I think part of it is like the guardrails I mentioned earlier where the creators have this premise of, okay, you can kind of wedge this story in between issues. You take your pick and there's only so much you can do. So, cause there's not going to be a lot of consequences. So every story so far doesn't really feel like an exciting roller coaster that you don't know what's going to happen next. It feels a little more like uh, it's a small world after all, where you're just kind of like going through and, you know, admiring the art and, you know, enjoying the, the, the monotonous music and just, you know, it's a, it's a nice little, it's a nice little ride, but it's not, it's not a thrill. You know, it's, it is, now, it's not bad. Something this series could become for us. So we had four mutants that we'd never seen before in here who I am not like, these aren't Arab names. If these were Arab names, I feel like I would have so much to say because I'm no they're all I'm, pagan they're all pagan holidays they're all based on I'm Wiccan and pagan holidays fairly certain yes yeah they're there's some Bulk and yeah, they said like the, yeah. the witches Sabbath not lasagna I kept wanting to like read it as lasagna it's as not, a guy oh, who's the, not, this is my Luf-Naza? these are my holidays Luf- these are the names of my holidays but so we have those and then they are presumably murder killed the end by doom yeah do we feel that so first part A we could see these characters resurrected on Krakoa in the future? And B, how do we feel about having character resurrections on Krakoa who could then have their backstories filled in and placed in time with older series where we get their deaths in X-Men Legends? I have, it could go- I have a short answer to the first part and a short answer to the second part. Pretend for a minute I'm new writer, Mikey New Writer, and I have an opportunity to write Marauders. I'm going to create my own characters that if get it used in a movie, I'm going to get more attention for than do a really cool take on obscure Peter David characters. So I don't feel a pull toward these poorly defined characters where I would want to write them. I would create more fleshed out, less possibly racially and religiously encroaching insensitive versions. As far as bring them back, I bet they might just use this to be like Doom executes mutants. He's a bad guy. Like they could reference this more than I think they'd bring these guys back. Yeah. There's just not a reason to. Yeah, I I agree. I think I think they're not compelling potential. I think okay, I think the potential is there for yeah. somebody to successfully do that. Like, again, like, give me a, a Morlock one-shot, make a compelling character, and then resurrect them on Krakoa. I'm into it. Like, sure. But I think the smarter move is grabbing obscure pull. Like, you were right, you know, we were right the first time. Rhapsody, right? Like, give me give me a character that was there that we did not get enough of and then give us a little more, you know, with them. So, and let's go other you, way with Could it. you introduce a new character and bring them back? Absolutely. The X-Men Legends. wouldn't be these guys. The Legends have been writers with more modern artists for the most part. Yeah. What if we flip that and it becomes art legends with new writers, right? Like a Sienkiewicz working with uh, Leah Williams. Leah Williams gives us a character resurrection and then we go back and find out how they died in a New Mutants comic taking place between 27 and 28 with art by Bill Sienkiewicz.
Babich, written by Leah Williams, where they meet this character and this character dies and now they're resurrected in the Leah Williams book. Like, what if I it's like that as a writer? different project. That's not it a story a that project. he never got to tell. It's not. So I like that a lot. I love that. But this isn't, this isn't either. <laughs> Peter David hasn't been sitting on this story for 30 years. So guys, we are, we are at time. I am calling it X Factor. You ended at issue 90. We're ending you soon. Guys, final thoughts on X Factor number. Oh my God, I just called it X Factor. Final thoughts on, uh, yeah, X Factor 75B and 75C. 75.1 and 75.2. Yeah, yeah. Casada math. Not 75.INH. Or point AU, which I actually thought was really clever that the Age of Ultron stuff was point AU because that's also alternate universe. So, oh my point God, AU we're not going to talk about AU. I so hated clever. that. Yeah. Now, okay. Hated that whole thing. Um, final thoughts. Final thoughts on this. You know, uh, it happened. It wasn't bad. <laughs> That's that's my hot take. I mean, like, we, I, I think I think just in this, you know, little brainstorm of a of an episode, like we've come up with some great potential storylines and and possibilities with this premise of of X Men Legends. I think uh, we, you know we've covered that the potential and the promise uh, are are not really meeting up with what could what what could be happening. We're getting kind of some, you know, this was a bit of a throwaway story, but you know, there there were some great panels, there was some great art, and and it was not bad. We didn't really get to go in the art. I, I like the art i like the way stylistically it brings us back and nico really hit the nail on the head at the beginning of this with how what an amazing job rochelle rosenberg did um, yeah. she was on so much x stuff pre krakoa and to no fault of her own like marte gracia just came in and was master classing with a color palette and style that is incredibly unique and now defines this new era so we don't have much use for the amazing talents of rochelle rosenberg in the krakoan era right now which is um, but what she did here, hyper accenting the primary colors in a way that elicits that 90s style so much. Like this is so bold and colorful in a way that is not at all Krakoan. Very flat, very unsaturated, except when neon. Like it, it's a really specific pen tone. It, it, yes. it blew my mind. The greens, the greens are so horrifying and putrid, which was such a big 90s thing. Really gross greens. And like, I mean that. Yeah, that plasmic green. Yeah, plasmic. Thank you. That's so much better than gross. Yeah, she she did a fantastic job on here. And, and I'm a big fan of her work. I always love when he gets to confuse us all by doing work with Matthew Rosenberg as well. She did great color work, you know, give her props for what she did on Disassembled, which was a project that had a lot of different writers, but one colorist to help tie it together. And, you know, I'm a, a big fan of, of the final product on, on that series, which was also hers. So big props to Rochelle Rosenberg on this. I also think Todd Nock deserves, you know, because the guy knows how to pencil into someone's into someone else's vision. I think it's unfair mm-hmm. to say, because, you know, uh, Rochelle and Todd were partnered together on the Nightcrawler book that came up earlier as well under Claremont, right? But I feel like Nock can step into another personality pretty well. And I feel like that's something he does really well on this book. And I really like the art probably the most. Nock is really good at taking, taking something that in other hands could have become questionable PG-13 and making it solidly 
really enjoyably PG in a way that I would kind of say Umberto Ramos, like tying him with like artists like the Dodsons, Umberto Ramos and David Baldion. And, you know, another artist would have made clothes blown off be something completely different than what Knock did here. Um, and I think there's a reason why he tends to be on more youth oriented projects. It's a skill that he has, you know, his Young Justice run was great and great for kids. 